Section 23 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20, Trier, Part 2. My Aunt Emma, in her lonely villa at B resembling a villa at Surbiton or Laleham, has likewise no great opinion of her national police. So although she subscribes with her neighbours to employ a private constable to watch her door at night, she prefers to make assurance doubly sure, and sets a thief to catch a thief, as it were. A clever mechanical contrivance in the nature of a clock is attached to her front door. The trusty watchman, passing to and fro on his beat every ten minutes, is bound to punch the clock every time and the incorruptible instrument registers the punch. So much for Aunt Emma, who is very old and very wise, for so far her watchman, his morals reinforced by this clock, has never failed her. We go on through a maze of little quiet streets of houses interspersed by high mute-faced garden walls, enclosing churchyards, some of them, for the long yew boughs lean over into the roadway. As we wander for half an hour together, all is dark, mysterious and silent, until the city tram, like a huge perambulating night-beetle, all iridescent and phosphorescent in the gloom, comes blundering through, tickling the shutters of the houses and flattening us against the wall till it has passed. And presently, in pursuance of Joseph Leopold's nightly policy, we pass through the lighted portals of one of the three homes of light and song that Trier holds. There is no play on at the theatre that night, and no concert at the club next door. Only last night we took our tickets a couple of hours beforehand and returned at seven, seven, mind you, to see Der Condottiere. It was the history of a certain Colleone who, for the love of a lady, betrayed Venice. One lady, nay two, even three, all of them were ready to risk life and honour for the sake of Colleone, who was quite old and not ashamed of it. This was one of the touches of realism in an otherwise romantic play. Everyone comes in and tells Colleone that he is gaga and ought to know better, but he naturally falls back on his demonstrable fascinations. So lovely Venetian ladies continue to be admitted at all hours. In between the acts we wandered about in a large foyer, very white and clean, hung with portraits of great actors, and drank box and coffee, served from a buffet of two lovely matrons, not a bit like barmaids. Then we went in to see Colleone die impressively in his chair, before the doge's throne, stripped of his honours and condemned to death. At least, this is how I made out the Byronic story. But, as I say, there was no play on that night at all, and no concert. For weeks we had seen across the square from our hotel a dreary civic building of sorts which had borne in white letters the announcement, Tuberculosis Museum and I had promised myself that one hour at least I would sup full of horrors. But this evening the label had gone, and the plain grey building became what it always was, 
the cadastral. And so we fell back on the plat du jour, a cinematograph. I had never seen a cinematograph show till I came to live in Germany. I was then told that England abounded in them, and this wild joy was at hand, had been at hand for years, in the two main streets that bounded my dwelling. I had never so far discovered them, never known this famous form of amusement. Now I live in them. I'm only sorry that the censor has lately been allowed to have anything to do with them, for now I shall never see again what I saw in the course of my first cinematograph, the... No. Joseph Leopold, taking upon himself the office of the much-abused functionary, says I am not to set down what I saw. At any rate, it was the triumph of the unexpected, and that surely is the salt of cinematographs and entertainments generally. And it was nothing wrong. It was only out of place, and would not have been out of place in a musical comedy. Nay, it would have been indicated. I burn to say what it was. Joseph Leopold does not take a frivolous view of this enormous international development. The cinematograph is an institution. It is educational. It is, at any rate, reading without tears. Footnote. The village of Kreuzberg on April the 14th, 1913, allocated fifty pounds of its yearly revenue to purchasing seats for poor children at the local cinematographs on Sundays throughout the year. J. L. F. M. H. End footnote. It is vastly inducive of a philosophical attitude of mind. It is a vivid, cogent object lesson in the sequence of events. The couple of stories usually given, historical, cosmopolitan, revelatory of varieties of national character, as even the more laughable films are, must be provocative of something like the prophetic powers that a study of history past and present gives. A Hochspannender's detective drama may, in its details, pander to a vulgar taste, but it is pretty certain to reach the level of the intelligence it is designed to impress. Possibly some forger has been turned from his wickedness, some fool from his folly, some potential murderer from his crime, by the sight of one of these dramas of financial ruin, of blood and revenge, even though, owing to the obvious imperfection of the medium, blood cannot run red or the face of the ruined man, Blanche. It is better so. It is better, as Shakespeare's Helena said, that, quote, the white death should sit on their cheeks forever, unquote, for the coloured films are abominable. But as it is, I should not mind wagering that conscience money has been paid as a result of some evenings spent in a red, plush-coloured armchair with an antimacassar slung over the back of it, a square of tawdry lace that is apt to follow you out into the street. And are no simple souls induced to a more tolerant rule of piety after seeing, say, the bell-ringer, where the devil terrifies the ancient functionary from ringing the Angelus, and only gives him leave to pursue his calling on condition that the devil shall take the first soul that enters the church while the bell is ringing.
it is hard on the soul but the philosophy of the scapegoat is sound enough the innocent since medieval times must suffer for the guilty and an angel from heaven her wide wings disguised under a beggar's cloak enters the church and rings the bell for the charitable old bell-ringer who has stooped in the porch to succour her this is of course a film which would not obtain in a protestant town and others which i have seen in germany would be prohibited in england for the sake of the young person people rail in england against this large looming personage and her invasion of the library committees and the stalls of the problem plays so dear to the english soul but we have a short way with her in germany english people who have a reasonable zest for seeing life as it is complain that they are driven by their parental susceptibilities to read milk and water stuff and view plays that are only fit for babes but no one suggests that the onus of chaperonage might be thrown on the police as it is in germany and the young person deaf to the moral suasion of parents kept by armed force from the book or the play instead of the play or the book from the young person yet it is practically so in germany as far as the theatre is concerned reasonable plays are put on and enjoyed by the elders an angel with a flaming sword stands at the gate of the theatrical eden and forbids the young of both sexes to enter paradise before their time that is eighteen years old the chief of police prescribes to what place the young men and maidens under this age shall be admitted or no and places a simple policeman at the doors of the theatre to enforce his behest and as for children of tender years the germans see that the lesson shall not be too strong too deeply driven home to the tender intelligence when a film that may prove a bugbear is presented or one holding the powers that be up to execration or vilifying the army or any other lawfully constituted authority children are not allowed to enter at all it is impossible for local governments to take such a tender interest in the morals of their subjects without the conflict of authorities producing some odd results it must never be forgotten that germany is a mass of little ill-welded nationalities all under a first warlord that is what the kaiser literally is the curious local jealousies existing between one state and another are the unknown factor and make a topsy-turviness which in operation remind one of an opera of gilbert and sullivan there is one famous film heiss's blut which was prohibited in frankfurt and forbidden to be performed in trier that is why i was able to see it in h dash because h dash is in hessen darmstadt not in prussia and it is really as its name denotes a spannendes drama a beautiful and famous danish actress has played in the preparation of the film the part of the woman of strong passions united to a gentleman unable to satisfy them she casts her affection on the new chauffeur and makes an assignation with him during her husband's absence he returns and surprises the pair 
and turns the temperamental lady and her lover out of the house. The degraded one becomes a burglar's mate, and we see her in a thieves' kitchen concocting a plan for the breaking into her former abode. She is persuaded by a truculent chauffeur lover to dress as a boy, to scale the window and let him in. She naturally chooses the nursery window. By her boy's cot, the ex-husband finds her. She confesses, and he takes her back. Och, spannendes indeed. For novelists, like Joseph Leopold and me, the rage for picture theatres is a distinct gain. It may be the novel form of the future. When there will be so many books published that no one has time to read them, the author, wise before his time, will devote his intelligence to the presentation of his message, whatever it is, through this hasty medium, to all who will not wait for the development of style, niceties of dialogue, and so on. It is not perhaps generally known that the actors who take the parts of characters in a film accompany all their gestures for the sake of ressemblance with speeches appropriate thereto, half gag, half set down for them. But without envisaging such a total abnegation of the merits of style in the future, let us see that, in so far as the present condition of things affects authors, they have all to gain by the tales that are told nightly in dumb show. The audience, composed pretty nearly of rustics in the classical sense, unsophisticated, unlettered, slow at apprehending the contortions, the mysteries of a good plot, will gradually get more and more used to following its peripatetics, tracing out the issues, holding the multiple strands that go to make a story, weaving them gradually, skilfully into the main one. Till by the time the light suddenly grows in the saal, and the pate cock seems to stand on the empty sheet and crow triumphant, the whole has grown coherent in their minds. It is magnificent training for readers. We see in Das Gefährliche Alter, another good German film, the spendthrift at the restaurant confronted by La Douloureuse, and the elegant harpy who has cost him so dear at his side, egging him on, get the money to pay for it. Her speech is given in writing on a board, but it is hardly necessary. The context is explanatory enough. The slide shifts. We see his mother weeping over her secretaire, where notes for fifty pounds are tumbling about mixed with correspondence cards. As they will in the desks of mothers in films. We see her go to bed. And in the next slide... Her son appears, walking in the peering, creepy way which is suggestive of proposed criminal attempts on secretaires, and so on and so on, to a mother's inevitable forgiveness. Yes, I consider the advent of the Boy Scouts, the invention of picture postcards, and the rage for picture theatres as the three most important developments of this age of brass and iron. I began this book with a procession. I will begin to end it with one. The stateliness of a King of England's coronation, its proud aloofness has no parallel in this lively bourgeois city of Trier, 
where incapable policemen are jostled by the crowds they marshal, and even the imperious military are not taken seriously on a day of feasting. And I remembered that orderly and well-dragooned crowd in front of Parliament Square on June the 22nd, 1911, when the police had carefully winnowed and mown the street of possible suffragettes, and incidentally of all the people who had come to see other people. But here in Trier I was glad enough of Joseph Leopold's tidy German circumference as we pushed our way through the narrow streets in the thickest, bluffest crowd I ever found myself in. The occasion was the hundredth Jahrfeier of the Kaiserin Augusta, quote, verbunden mit Kornblumentag in Trier, unquote. A deeply nationally beloved queen she was. Her picture in the programme shows her a quiet, determined sage lady, her head wrapped in a schleier becoming her age. The cornbloomer is her flower, blue is the Prussian colour, and the loyal inhabitants of Trier were glad to link up a historischer Festzug with her day and promote a festival of the nature of one of the pageants they arrange so often in England nowadays to stir up the dormant histrionic and spectacular talent of the old maids of provincial towns. The programme began at seven with military veckham. From eight o'clock onwards, Helfenderdamen sold favours in the streets, cornblumen, picture postcards and programmes. Hastily of the first Helfenderdamer who came along, smiling with a basket full of the small blue cornflowers, Joseph Leopold purchased a couple of sower blooms and stuck them about us both. He was right, for we were besieged by more beautiful ladies, each clamouring like any enterprising fishwife, for us to buy her particular wares. The sight of the cornblumen pinned on our coats, purchased of a colleague, stilled and daunted the others somewhat, and we were allowed to pass along to the places we had secured. Cornblumen for months afterwards surged into my ken from wardrobes and letter cases and trunks. We'd been obliged in the end to buy dozens of these tickets of leave. We got at last to the stand erected in the old marketplace with the two great churches on the one side and the old house of Councillor K with its hot sulphurous looking painted gables on the other. The procession began with the usual heralds, a sort of plain bread and butter course before the cake and jam of the important entries. After the foregrouper, came a very telling and to Germanized pleasant scene of Germans after a successful fight leading home the captive Romans in chains and ox carts laden with spoil. That is how twas. Even my Mrs. Markham says so. The German warriors were a hairy set of people covered with skins and gold bangles and wearing helmets crowned with the horns of every known beast. A personage called on the programme, Hermann de Koruskefürst, followed them. Mrs. Markham had not enlightened me as to him, and I puzzled in vain to discover if Keruske wasn't a German way of spelling Merovingian. You see, I had a better drawn literary picture in my mind, Carlyle's, of the, quote, Merovingian kings wending slowly on their bullock carts through the streets of Paris, 
with their long hair flowing, unquote. Carlyle's few words have forever made me see the great eyes of Clovis and Merovee, full of the unassuaged, wild, melancholy and savagery of primitive conquerors and rulers. I look at their presentations in frescoes and statues and imagine them saying always, A quoi bon? And these travestied actors and apprentices and shopmen of Trier, as I suppose they were, posing as Neustrians and Austrasians, clad temporarily in such impossible, unspeakable garb, easily suggested by their gloom and gaucherie and wish-I-were-at-home air, the necessary touch of verisimilitude. Then, mit seinem Gefolge, came the greatest man Europe has ever been privileged to see, according to Joseph Leopold, Kaiser Karl der Grosse. The German who impersonated Charmaine seemed a little weighted by his importance. I think he was an actor. He had an abteilung all to himself. He was followed by an overbalanced section comprising Barbarossa, looking very shy in his immense red wig, and Henry the Lion with knights and standard-bearers galore. The next part, without an interval, struck me in my limited Mrs. Markham-bounded knowledge of German history as a tremendous leap across the centuries to the Thirty Years' War. There was an end of impersonators cluttered up with wigs and skins and bangles. Instead, we had dignified gentlemen in coats and cocked hats and gold lace, Generalissimus Field Marshal Wallenstein and Piccolomini, and I thought of the pathetic plaint of Thekla. Du heiliger, rufe dein Kind zurück. Ich habe genossen das irdische Glück. Ich habe gelebt und geliebet. But everybody has not ploughed through the Piccolomini and read the tale of Wallenstein's defaulting general and his daughter's fate. Not Joseph Leopold, for instance, who gazed unswayed by sentiment on the long procession of the real victims of Tilly and Wallenstein, that is, the Landsknechte and Bauern, samples of the hapless peoples whose homesteads were sacked and burned, whose fields were the marching grounds for thirty years of the armies of these selfish contending dynasties. The fifth part dealt with the time of the great Kurfürsten and Frederick William and his big grenadiers and the sixth part which took as long again as any of the others to unroll with frederick the great and his general zieren and schweren and the romantic figure of the old dessau most people have a weakness for the old dessau because of his mad passion for annalisa the apothecary's daughter it was not at first admitted by his family but once when he came back from some campaign or other to be covered with honours, the young impulsive fellow was not to be found to receive them. Where is he? cry court chamberlains, gold sticks in waiting, pages and all. At last some unconsidered menial hazards the suggestion, er ist bei dem apotheker. And sure enough, Leopold of Anhalt Dessau, placing his sweetheart before all honours and claims of family, had run straight to her, and there was nothing to be done but give him his wish and marry him to the apothecary's daughter. 
It goes on, the tramp of soldiers' feet, the trommeln and pfeifenchor, the Freiheitskämpfer, the Lutzauer Freihussaren and Scheidhussaren, and endless military figures on horseback with names that stow one. Theodor Kröner, Gneisner, Scharnhorst von Horn, and General Field Marshal Blücher, and then the Einigungskriegen and its authors, General Field Marshal von Moltke, Kriegsminister von Rhön, and Fürst Bismarck. This is German history, and where was William I? The great dignified figures sitting negligently on horseback with serious faces, the gold galloon showing under their cloaks, passed and gave way to a parade of modern weapons and uniforms, a coarse show of warlike strength, almost paralysing in its suggestion of completeness, and following, Spielleute, Infanterie, Jäger and Schutzen, Maschinengewehr complete, Pioniere, Fussartillerie, Feldartillerie und Kavallerie, and last but not least, after die Rotokreuz Sanitätstruppe, came the saddest post-reflection on all these splendours, unsere Veteranen, old, worn, battered, like wind-tossed, rain-faded scarecrows. The men of 1870 paraded their honourable caducity along the sunshiny, wind-swept street. In rows of four they tottered along. Some could walk, and some could only drive. In carriagefuls of four these drove slowly by. They did not look happy or prosperous. Dazed, they seemed. Half puzzled, half annoyed by the light, these ghosts of a warlike past dragged away from their chimney corners, where they were permitted to dream away in penurious decency the rest of a life whose youth was devoted to the Kaiser. They have lived through it, just... One could hardly picture them as they were then, bold, strong, erect, and kind. Yes, they were kind. France owns it. Of all the procession of mummers, these were the real thing, the grey, mourn reality of war. The rest was fake. But this was silence. End of section 23